This is Pramila Jayapal speaking out against the American president. The president and his administration are waging an assault on the United States Constitution. She is at a rally in the aftermath of 9-11, criticizing the government at a time when leading Republicans and Democrats were not. Brothers and sisters, what we have today is nothing less than a hijacking of our democracy. And we are here to say that we will not stand for that. 20 years later, she's one of the most powerful members of Congress. Representative Jayapal. Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Pramila Jayapal, Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Well, she has become a real star. You have a fascinating uh, story. You were born in India. Let's see if we can put our hands on the moral arc of the universe and bend it more quickly towards justice. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm your host, Arthi Shahani. Today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is a Democratic Party boss. Not her official title, but the position she has bulldozed for herself. She broke the rules of party loyalty and then rewrote the rules once inside. She is one of 18 members of Congress born abroad. We discuss how a horrific family crisis prepared her for, well, anything, and what the Pledge of Allegiance means to her. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. What matters inside the halls of Congress is not how many retweets you get. It's how many votes you control. Your own, obviously, but also your colleagues. If you prove you can influence others, you have power. Elected to Congress in 2016, Representative Pramila Jayapal has, with remarkable speed, established that power. She is chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which has 93 House members. That's almost a fifth of the entire House of Representatives, over a third of all House Democrats. The gentlelady from Washington is recognized for one minute. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise in strong support of this resolution. You know Jayapal's work. She and her progressive voting bloc are responsible for the push for a $15 minimum wage, the push to expand who is eligible for Medicare. They played a key role in getting the most recent $600 and $1,400 stimulus checks out. Every minute, Madam Speaker, is a death, a family devastated, a business shuttered. While it's still early, I mean, objectively speaking, you have totally changed the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, For many years, this caucus did not act as a voting bloc. They splintered all the time. I spoke to quite a few people who work on Capitol Hill. One person I spoke to described the caucus as, quote, a joke. How did you size up the caucus when you first came to Congress? Uh, I just felt it was nothing more than sort of a social club. I mean, it had some gatherings, but I was really kind of stunned because there just wasn't, didn't seem to be a cohesive force or really the ability, either staff-wise or rules-wise, to leverage 
the power of the Progressive Caucus. And so you jump into a position to lead the caucus and you you look at it and you're like, oh, we've got to change the rules of this thing so it starts acting more like a voting block. Yeah, well, I mean, it came out of not seeing what the driving force of the Progressive Caucus was. You know, people would say they were progressive to run in a primary, but then they would go and do things that were absolutely not progressive later on, or they wouldn't sign on to bills. Her conundrum? Politicians paying lip service. Calling themselves progressive because it's got cachet, but then voting for, say, the oil industry or big tech agenda. What I realized is that there were no rules governing membership of the caucus. Mm. And that was, how do you get in? What do you have to do to stay mm. in? What does it mean to be a progressive? What are the values? What are the bills? And then also, how do we vote? How do we say to leadership, the progressive caucus won't vote in this way on this bill if this thing is not in there? There were really no procedures to govern that. She set out to make some rules like all of you self-described progressives must vote in lockstep with this caucus, two out of every three votes. If you break rank more than that, you're out. Bye. There was another problem, as Jayapal saw it. Some progressives were not focused on passing bills. They were focused on killing stuff they didn't like. Jayapal doesn't just want to destroy things. She wants to create change. Organizing is not something where you just go out and you put out a tweet and you say, this is bad, I'm going to vote against it. Okay, you can do that. But that's not what it means to leverage power. To leverage power, you actually have to figure out how a structure or an institution works, and then you have to change the way that that institution works by creating a group that really feels strongly about the identity, is bought into it, and is willing to push back. Progressives come in many shapes and sizes. You've got military veterans, anti-war activists, older white men, younger women of color. There are rifts. There is infighting. One rift has gotten a lot of media attention. It's between a small group of women of color in Congress, you may have heard of them, the squad, and the top House Democrat, an older white woman, Nancy Pelosi. Our teams are, are in communication. Our chiefs are... are but shouldn't it be a face-to-face with I you agree. and the speaker? Yes. As a well, yes. speaker of the House, she can ask for a meeting to sit down with us for clarification. Pelosi has been dismissive of the squad. It's like five people. No, it's the progressive group. It's more than well, five. I'm a progressive, yeah. Enter Pramila Jayapal, peacemaker. Part of your work has been to hold it together. And you know what? Diversity is hard. Unity is hard. Okay, these are not easy things. Your longtime friend, Leanne Hall, okay, you put us in touch. She has been observing your journey, and she had this to say. Pramila really has played a bridging role between the sort of squad and Pelosi, 
the squad came in and they wanted to plant a very left progressive flag and define it as a pole within the public conversation. What Pramila was able to do was really bridge that dialogue between the left pole and what uh, Pelosi uh, has on occasion seen as what is doable. Your reaction to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think that um, last year, you know, you really needed to be able to get at least 20 to 30 votes to stop anything or to really have any leverage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you couldn't just do it with the squad. I mean, you couldn't just do it with uh, four people plus me plus, you know, five others. That's fine. You'd get 10 votes, but you wouldn't be able to move anything. And so I think that was very much of what I was trying to do is build enough of a group that we would be able to push for some things. And so that was definitely a big part of it. I think this year is a little bit different because there's a lot fewer votes. Mm -hmm. But also this year we've got a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. And so you're not just passing legislation that is in name only, you're actually trying to pass legislation that might be able to get through all the way, both chambers and be signed into law by the president. And I want to bring back then really the the core of why I'm bringing this up. I bring it up because you've got to hold people together. Your friend Leanne, she just names one of many different factions that you've got to hold together. She happens to name one that's incredibly high profile, right? (laughs) People know what the squad is. That's why I want to talk about it with you, Congresswoman Jayapal. And so can you give us any insight into as you try to get progressives to act in unison, how did you influence the squad? Well, I think we've just, first of all, really engaged them in all of our discussions. I mean, they were part of the strategy. They're a part of all the things we do. I'm not saying that it works every time, but that is my experience as an organizer. If you bring people in and they feel a part of the decision making and they are a part of the decision making, then it's a lot easier to hold people together. If you're very hierarchical and you say, this is how it's going to go. This is my view. We're doing it this way or the highway. It becomes much harder unless you're the Speaker of the House and you have control of all of the all of the levers of the House to move things. But for most of us, that's not the case. So we have to find other ways of um, unifying. And I think I've worked very hard to make sure that people feel like they're a part of the Progressive Caucus, the strategy, the outcomes, the vision. And so it sounds like in the case, for example, of the squad, Part of what you do with them, with others, is let me make a seat at the table worth you joining. Let me convince you that we're going to get more done together than you would have gotten done without this. Yes. And I think, I mean, I I don't know that I had to convince that much. I think once they understood that, um, you know, because people come into Congress, me included, and you're like, okay, I'm here. Now I can change the world. And then you realize you're one vote. You're one vote. Do you feel like a boss lady? Oh, no, I really... Really? <laughs> I, I had to get... 
I mean, I don't know. What do you like mean it, by boss lady? No, I just mean like you're flexing. You're yeah, yes, you're yeah. early in your career in Congress, but you're flexing. Everyone- oh, in that sense, yes, yes, total boss lady in terms of flexing. I have no problem with that. I, you know, as an organizer for so long, I always used to cringe at the word boss because right, right, because you think of it as like the bad. exactly, but but in a good boss lady context, sure. Yeah, it's just, I mean, to me, it's remarkable. And we're going to transition now into your backstory. But, like, to me, it's just remarkable because, like, you kind of come out of nowhere. And in a handful of years, Nancy Pelosi is talking with you because she knows you control votes. Right. Well, that's the power of a unified caucus. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal's family is from Kerala, a state in India that's known for advancing women's rights. She grew up in Indonesia and Singapore. She came to America because her dad fell in love with the idea of this place. It was, he felt, where anyone could become anything. You boarded a plane by yourself at age 16. Explain that. My parents really believed in the United States as the place for education, and they took their last dollars and said, we're going to send you over there on your own, and you better succeed. And (laughs) I got on a plane and landed here with two suitcases, not knowing anything about winter, um, and, you know, knowing that I was probably leaving my parents for the rest of my life, as it's turned out. I don't know if I knew that at the time. Hmm. Do you recall what you were thinking at the time at 16 years old in that flight? Oh, yeah. I was terrified. I was so concerned about not fitting in. I didn't know the customs. I didn't know the country. I had been here very briefly once, um, many years before that. Um, But it was, for all intents and purposes, my first time. And I was going to, you know, live away from my parents. I was just so young. And the weather was different. The food was different. A lot of people on the left don't really believe in the American dream. Do you? Well, I believe that I am the epitome of the American dream. I came here with nothing in my pockets from another country, and I now sit as the first South Asian American woman in the United States Congress. I had a great education, so many opportunities, um, even though there were many, many hard times. But I think... For the vast majority of Americans, that sense of the American dream and opportunity is not there anymore. So I agree with them. I had it. And that's why I want to pay it forward. That's why it's so important for me to make sure that that American dream is not dead, that it actually still holds value for people, whether you're born in this country or whether you're born in another country. Do you think that being a migrant has trained you to lead in the way that you lead? Well, it certainly trained me to do the hard work. It's like Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, we immigrants, we get the job done. I mean, we just, we're (laughs) always prepared. We work so hard. We see, you know, barriers as challenges that we have to get through. Um, And I just think so many immigrants have a much harder origin story than I did even. And um, they utilize that, to build their resilience and their strength. And it's what fuels me when I'm feeling down. I think about all the undocumented women that I've worked with over the years who 
have literally woken up every morning and put one foot in front of the other, even though they know they might get deported or even though their husband has been deported or their kids have been deported and they're still going. When you describe that feeling fueled by the adversity of others, how and why does that fuel you? I find that there is a depth of strength that emerges when you have to face crises. And there is an understanding of who you are and a grounding in who you are that isn't so easily flexed and swayed with what other people think. It is really about who you are in the world and you're able to hang on to that. I feel like I'm able to hang on to who I am in Congress because I had this deep grounding as an immigrant myself and working in community with others um, who also struggled. I think that struggle is so powerful. When did you have to face a crisis? Well, coming to this country was its own crisis, though I'm not sure I fully recognized it. And then I would say that the other major, major crisis I faced was when my kid, Janak, um, who's now 24 and healthy, was born at one pound, 14 ounces and 26 and a half weeks in India. And I had to get to a hospital and then I almost lost my citizenship. The moment Congresswoman Jayapal is describing is terrifying. She gave birth to a child the size of her hand in India. And then Jayapal learned she had to come back to the U.S. immediately to keep her own legal status. Baby Janak was too tiny to fly, so Jayapal was forced to make a decision. Leave her baby or lose her green card. She chose her baby. Women who have been separated from their kids, I know, I know what that feels like because that was a very real threat. I got my status taken away from me and Janak was a U.S. citizen who was able to come back to the United States, needed to come back to the United States for medical care, but I was not going to be able to be here with them. And then I went through terrible postpartum depression after Janak was born, went through a divorce. That whole time period was probably the hardest time of my life and still makes me emotional thinking about it. But I I think it's made me a better human. My mother always says this to me, that she thinks of my sister and I. Uh, The reason she's so proud is not just what we've accomplished, but because when we fall down, we get back up. I think that's how I think about my life, is just these amazing opportunities and... Uh, a deep gratitude for the strength of conviction that I feel like I have in who I am and in what I'm here on this earth for. She returned to the U.S. with Janak in 1997, Jayapal's permanent resident status restored, but all the years that had qualified her for citizenship, those were gone. She had to start from scratch. Up next, how Pramila Jayapal got her start in politics, not by towing the party line, by agitating. You started rallying at a time when many Democratic leaders were silent, afraid to speak up. I'm talking about post-9-11 America. 
Yes, well, I remember thinking at the time that everything is going to change for someone like me. That's after the break. From WBEZ Chicago, you're listening to Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal got her start in politics not by paying her dues to the Democratic Party. She started as an activist who took a position outside the mainstream. And in fact, you could say that you had some beef with the party, um, how it operated. You started rallying at a time when many Democratic leaders were silent, afraid to speak up. I'm talking about post-9-11 America. Talk a bit about how the September 11th terrorist attacks flung you into politics. Yes. Well, I remember that day. Um, I remember getting a call very early in the morning from a friend on the East Coast telling me what had happened. I just moved into a new house. I had a tiny little TV and it was in a box somewhere. And I had to pull it out and watch these scenes that were unfolding. And I remember thinking at the time that everything is going to change for someone like me. Hmm. I had just gotten my U.S. citizenship and I just knew that with all of the press that was going on and the ways in which this was being depicted, that there would be a crackdown on people who looked, in in quotes, different. And I was one of those people. You're describing a reaction to the September 11th attacks that I think is by no means unique. I think it's actually a widely felt reaction. So many people of color in this country, I'd say specifically brown people, like you, like me, like others, from the earliest portrayals of the attacks, we had this sense that this is bad for us. Yeah. Why do you think we had that sense? I think it's two things. I think, first of all, it's the pictures that went up and you saw the immediate focus on a group of people that would be expanded to include all of us. The terrorist attacks against the U.S. cast Muslims all over the country in a harsh light. And a guy came in and started screaming, oh, terrorist, terrorist. There were some Muslims in America happy about the attacks. That has been established beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's start there. In these moments of deep crisis in U.S. history, whether it's the Japanese internment, there is an immediate turn or focus to people who are different. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was what I felt in my bones. But then also very quickly, within a day, there were hate crimes exploding against mm-hmm. Sikh Americans, against Somali Americans, women in hijab, men in turbans. Just four days after the September 11th attacks, he was shot and killed. Well, the news, a Sikh professor has been attacked in New York. He killed my brother because he thought the turban and beard not belonged to this country. The killer called himself a patriot at the time. I know for me, I don't know if this was true for you, 
I didn't wear my Indian clothes, which at that time I used to do quite a bit. I just enjoyed doing that, and I would wear a slavar kameez. I did not do that. I did not go out with my young baby um, on the streets without people around me who were white. Mm-hmm. One of your first campaigns was fighting for and alongside Somali immigrants who ran your local grocery store. Explain that. Yes, there were a number of grocery stores that were run by Somalis, and they were uh, often located or co-located next to money transmitter businesses. And very early on, um, the U.S. government decided to uh, target a lot of these money transmitter businesses named Hawalas. Formalized systems of IOUs, most of them legal, commonly used to move money in and out of the third world. They said that these were terrorist organizations, that they were facilitating the transfer of money to terrorists abroad in those countries. The Justice Department suspected these money transmitters and maybe the grocers who were right next door to them were terrorist fronts to get American dollars to foreign jihadists. Tom, good evening. Investigators say these groups that they hit in the U.S. today secretly funneled tens of millions of dollars a year to al-Qaeda terrorists. Jayapal believed the grocers were just grocers, legit small business owners who got the Muslim community its halal meat. And so when these uh, hawalas were targeted by the Department of Justice, which meant that there were armed agents that came in. Customs agents raid the office of a money transfer service. There were efforts to empty all of the groceries, all of the meat that had been stocked out of the freezers. And imagine a scene of a local grocery store in chaos. Innocent looking, says President Bush, but working toward a sinister end. They present themselves as legitimate businesses. But they skim money from every transaction for the benefit of terrorist organizations. And there are hundreds of community members who are watching as these armed uh, federal officials go in and essentially arrest and also empty out these stores. It was a real shock for the community. Jayapal jumped in to defend the grocers. She had started a small nonprofit. It was called the Hate Free Zone. It's since been renamed One America. Her original focus was private citizens attacking minorities. She pivoted to focus on the government attacking minorities. We ended up filing a class action lawsuit against the Bush administration. That ended up being 4,500 Somalis. So you basically, like, you were the person in the position of finding the incredibly good but totally free lawyers who are going to work pro bono <laughs> to represent a group of immigrants who are pretty much working class against the government at a time where that would be seen as highly unpatriotic. Exactly. That is exactly what we had to do. And and the community only trusted us. I mean, they really didn't trust the attorneys. They didn't trust uh, the government, you know, because they felt like they were being targeted, they had no knowledge of the process. Did any part of you worry that you are protecting the wrong people? And just bear with me for a moment, because you don't know the ins and outs of the local grocery store. It could turn out that they're guilty of something. I don't know all the facts. 
Yes, except that what I was arguing for was not innocence. I was arguing for due process. There is supposed to be a system of due process uh, of the law in the United States. And you cannot just forget about all that due process because there is this crisis. Mm -hmm. We have to follow those laws. That is part of who we are as a democracy. And we've seen what happened when we didn't do that with the Mm -hmm. Japanese internment. I mean, I can recall that time vividly. There were many brown leaders in the South Asian community who made it a point to get on TV and say, we are not the terrorists. Um, Were you ever concerned that your patriotism was going to be questioned? I mean, like you just said, you're new to America. You had just naturalized. You know, I I was, and I hated when I heard people say, we are not the terrorists, um, you know, because I felt that it was sort of separating us from what had already become a much broader group of people than than just that group of people who were actually in the planes that blew up the buildings. And so I felt like there was a problem with that framing. And I knew, I several times thought, if I had not already become a U.S. citizen, would I have done the same thing? Hmm. I think the answer is yes, Arthi, but I also felt like it was a requirement for me because I had just pledged allegiance to the flag of this country mm-hmm. and with liberty and justice for all. And in those days, it seemed that the very country I had just pledged my allegiance to was not interested in upholding liberty and justice for all. You know, it was a strange time. I mean, I had a lot of death threats uh, against me. I remember one in particular that said, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, you know, you'll be hanging from a noose. Those weren't the exact words, but it was something along those lines. And I actually had to call the FBI Mm -hmm. to report this. The same complex of agencies that you're suing to say, well, you also protect me. Correct. And I was quite convinced that I was, my phone was being tapped. I mean, there are just a lot of very strange things in that moment, but because I had just become a U.S. citizen, I felt I had this obligation now to protect the democracy that I had just sworn myself to. Turns out the Somali grocers were not guilty. The Justice Department, the prosecution, failed to prove any crime, let alone terrorism. But had the grocers been convicted... That would have been political suicide for Jayapal. She wasn't acting like a person with political ambitions. Years later, Jayapal did decide to go into politics. She ran for a seat in the state Senate in her home state, Washington. She won. Two years later, she decided to run for an open seat in Congress. She won again. In November 2016, Pramila Jayapal was elected to national office on the same day as Donald Trump. Let's fast forward to the Trump era. Donald Trump announces a ban. Effectively, it's against Muslims, immigrants, including green card holders from seven majority Muslim countries. It's not a Muslim ban, but we were totally prepared. It's working out very nicely. You see it at the airports. You see it all over. And your response is you head straight to the airport. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Explain that. 
Well, it was like 9-11 all over again, um, where we had to immediately challenge the president and the administration. And I knew how to do that, Arti. And I had all the connections I needed to do that, both to, you know, to, to go to the airport, but then also to build a giant group of people that showed up at the airport, thousands of people to protest this as well. Except now I had a new tool, which was now I'm a member of Congress. When I got to the airport, I wanted to go to speak to the head of CBP, Customs and Border Protection. And they were inside the airport somewhere in the back where you had to have security clearance to go. And the airport director said, I'm sorry, Congresswoman, you can't go in. And I said, well, either he comes to me or I go to him. And I said, well, that will set off an alarm (laughs) across the airport. Uh So you can't do that. And I said, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but unless he comes here to me or you take me there to him, that is what I'm going to do. And I think they really didn't know what to do. And there were other members of Congress there at the same time who I think were like, oh, my God, what is happening here? But ultimately, we all got on a bus and they took us to the office where we pounded on the doors. Picture it. Border Patrol is planning to deport immigrants who happen to land in America on a really bad day. The day the president announces a ban against people from certain Muslim-majority countries. Jayapal, less than one month into being an insider, threatens to get herself arrested in an act of airport civil disobedience, a federal crime. And because she is now Congresswoman Jayapal, and she's got other members of Congress with her in person and on the phone, security caves. Border Patrol agents who'd been hiding in their office are forced to come out and negotiate. And they stopped the plane on the tarmac and got the people off the plane so that they weren't deported. Congresswoman Jayapal, what you're doing in each instance in your post-9-11 example, in your Trump example, they're they're kind of similar, only your heft has changed. Like Correct. instead of asking your friends to show up with posters and it's all you can do, you're calling sitting members of Congress and asking them to weigh in. Yes. I had a theory of change that if we actually could use these platforms for the power that we needed to make changes and to organize, then that would be far better than being on the outside. And I don't mean better as in instead of, you really need both. Mm -hmm. But that there are some people who can go on the inside to do this. And now I had the power of the federal government behind me. Mm -hmm. Now I had the power of being a member of Congress and they couldn't just dismiss me. A lot of people in the last handful of years have had the experience of protesting or feeling called to, in some way, weigh into politics. People who maybe before didn't even care to, didn't want to. For people who don't know, am I an insider? Am I an outsider? Where do I belong in all this? How would you help someone answer that question for themselves? Well, I think I'm trying to actually get rid of the boundaries between insider and outsider because 
they were only relevant when we didn't have a lot of outsiders on the inside. Am I an insider or an outsider? I'm working inside the system, but so much of my strategy revolves around organizing everywhere, inside, outside, everywhere. But I think that some people know immediately that they want to be organizing on the ground in communities. Others know that they want to be working inside an institution to change the structures. For me, um, I tell young people all the time, you evolve as a person. You know, you things change and nothing is ever permanent. I never, Arthi, thought that I would run for office. I really didn't much care for politicians. I didn't think that they were particularly representative of me. And I didn't really want to run to be one. You didn't live your life like someone who was preparing to become a Democratic Party no. boss. That wasn't how you lived your life. <laughs> no, definitely not. In fact, I remember my husband used to tell me that I should join the Democratic Party organization. And I kept saying, why do I need to do that? As an activist, you often are focusing on one issue. And if there's a big bill, you can say, well, on this one issue, this is how I feel. You should vote yes or no on this bill, right? Because it's good on immigration, even if it might be terrible on something else. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in office, you are now representing all of the things. So if you have a big bill, um, you have to look across the board at, is this in total? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And then you don't have the choice to say, well, I'm going to hold out for the perfect. You have to press a yes or a no button on the floor multiple times a day, and you do not have to do that as an activist. I feel nearly done, but there's one thing Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and I discussed earlier that I can't let go. I don't feel satisfied yet. So often, people who I perceive have power don't feel like they do. I'm coming to learn that from interviewing them. And I don't get it. So I got to go back to that earlier question. Does she or doesn't she feel like a boss? <laughs> You're in part owning it. You're in part deflecting like, oh, it's this caucus, you know, we built. And yes, of course, it's not just you. It's always a group of people. Understood. I promise. <laughs> But still, I just want to hear, like, when did you feel like, oh, I'm moving things in this house? I definitely um, do uh, on many occasions. And I don't because power is very concentrated in the house. You know, it's extremely concentrated in the hands of the speaker, basically, and to some degree, some committee chairs. Mm -hmm. So that's the only qualification I would give. But yes, I feel really good about what I've achieved, for sure, and about the power that I've built, not, you know, sorry to, to do this again to you, but not for myself, but for these ideas that we are trying to move forward. You and, don't, yeah, you don't create the impression of somebody trying to make a name so that you can quickly cash in and have a nice retirement. We haven't gotten that right. impression, so we're not going there. <laughs> yeah. I think it's more just like, I I am not in your shoes, and I'm like... You're convincing some of the most vocal new Democrats who get all the media attention to come on to your ship. You're then telling the Speaker of the House, hey, I know you want to prioritize the moderates, but you're going to have to pay attention to us, the progressives, because you know what? We organize the votes. You're doing this power play, and I just want to know how you feel about it. I like that. 
I'm getting power for our ideas. I, I will never be one to shy away from flexing in that way. Um, and I do it with the White House. You know, uh, we have to do it with the president, um, mm-hmm. even though he's the leader of our party. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I think that's just part and parcel of the game. You don't win anything if you're not willing to flex. Probably the hesitancy you hear is Lao Tzu said the best leaders often lead from behind. And I'm mm-hmm. definitely not that. I'm somebody who's out front of course, on a lot of things. But sometimes you don't need to say you're powerful for, for, for you to be powerful. Other people can say it for you, and that's great. Thank you for letting me badger you about your power. <laughs> but don't you think that's also just a part of, maybe that is part of my origin story, right? I'm a brown immigrant woman, and we aren't always the ones tooting our horns about what we've done or what we've accomplished. And it's something that, frankly, I've had to learn as I've run for Congress, Mm. because I realize nobody else is going to toot your horn uh, when you're on a campaign. Mm. When I was running, I remember I had a consultant that said, Pramila, here's what I'm going to tell you. People don't hear what you say about your successes. And then even if they hear you, they don't believe you. So you just Mm. have to toot your own horn incessantly. Mm. And that was, you know, that was a that was a, a thing for me to learn. My lessons from Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. One, toot your own horn. May sound like douchey advice, but nobody's gonna do it for you. Two Sometimes when there are no rules, you need to make them to discipline your team into acting like one. Three, when you're working with big personalities who are butting heads in fighting, set a table and convince each of them you really do want to have a seat. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, hit subscribe. Leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. We are a new podcast. You keep us going. Let me know what you think. Text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi Four one one. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.